We'll go ahead and as you take a seat, open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. We are continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments today, coming to commandment number eight, and found in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 20, you shall not steal. And after the past two weeks, or I could say even after the last seven weeks, you may be thinking, okay, finally, we're at a commandment that I'm good on, right, right here. Like, I'm not breaking into any homes, I'm not, I'm not shoplifting, I'm not carjacking anybody, I'm not getting on, online and stealing people's identities. Like, I hope all that's true. But, like, you're finally at a spot where you're like, whew, I'm, I'm good on this one. But now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you, know, you probably realize that there's more to this commandment than just the obvious that's before us. It's, it's not a complicated commandment, but there's more to it than prohibiting bank robbery and don't steal a candy bar when you're in the line at the grocery store. And to be honest, there, there's so much that we won't even be able to cover um, when it comes to this commandment. But like I've said in previous weeks, I, I think that we're all a little bit more like the rich young ruler than we realize. That he's the young man who came to Jesus wanting to, to follow him. He believed that he had kept, kept all the commandments, including this one, you shall not steal. Yet when Jesus tells him to sell everything he owns and then come and follow him, we see the, the rich young man walk away sorrowful and sad and guilty Guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment without even realizing he had broken the Eighth Commandment. We'll look at how uh, in just a little while, but the Eighth Commandment is, it's very simple. It's a very simple commandment, yet it's a very powerful commandment. Yet even in its simplicity, we don't want to assume clarity. See, the rich young uh, ruler, the rich young man knew the Scriptures, but he wasn't clear on his understanding uh, of his guilt before God in breaking these commandments. So one thing that we can never, uh, never do is, is assume. We can't assume clarity when it comes to these things, that we all understand exactly what's taking place here, which means the first question that we need to ask this morning is, what does it mean to steal? Just a very basic question. What does it mean to steal? Well, a simple definition of what it means to steal is to steal is to take something that doesn't belong to you without permission. So to steal is to be a thief. I think we all get that. It's one of the, the humanity's oldest sins going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve given access to the garden, given dominion over everything in the garden except for one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is theirs. To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the earth. But that tree doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. And God says, don't touch the tree. Eat of all the other trees, but you can't eat of this tree. Yet what do they do? They eat from the tree that is forbidden. They steal fruit from a tree that they didn't have permission to eat from. That's what it means to steal, to take something that doesn't belong to you without permission. Which brings us to yet another question. What are the consequences of breaking the eighth commandment? And we're going to talk about punishment more in a moment, but here's where we're thinking about what stealing does, like what, what its effects are. And I think by reading through the Bible, what we see is that to steal is to subvert the whole social order away from God's design. 
Take Adam and Eve, for example. They eat from the tree, right? That they steal from God. So, so one, what it does is it reveals that their lack of trust in God's provision. And two, it violates the one who is stolen from. And as a result, in this particular case, all of creation is under the curse of sin. We're to this day experiencing the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin of theft. Now we move to today, you know, same consequences, lack of trust in God's provision and, and violates the one who's stolen from. When, when theft takes place, when someone steals from another, it violates the one who's stolen from, and it shows clearly that we are not trusting in God's provision. I'm sure we've all experienced this in one way or another. How many of you have had something stolen from you in your lifetime? Most all of us have had something stolen from us in our lifetime. While we were living in Memphis, we had Leslie's CRV, the little black CRV, had the passenger window knocked out of it, and I had left an 80-gig iPod sitting right there in the middle of the console. My fault. Shouldn't have done it. Somebody busted out the window, reached in, and grabbed the 80-gig iPod, went out with it. Now, the joke's on them. It had 80 gigs worth of sermons on it, like not a lick of music on the whole thing, but they got my 80-gig iPod, and I had to be the one who left cleaning up the window and paying to get the window fixed. When we were living in Florida, I was a student pastor down there. We were having an event that was taking place in the gym. My office, somebody got into my office, stole my, my credit card, and went out and racked up thousands of dollars worth of charges um, there. Thankfully, credit card companies have provisions and protections and all of those type of things, but it left me having to go through all the, the rigmarole to get that taken care of. And also left me feeling violated. Somebody entered into my space. Now, when I think about being violated when it comes to theft, I think that the most violated I felt was when I was in like seventh or eighth grade. How many seventh or eighth graders do we have in the room? Like, they're scared to raise their hand. Like, right now, what's he gonna do? <laughs> we got like a couple right up here in the front row. You can't see their hands because they're doing like this number right here. But when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I was in shop class. And I made a leather wallet while I was in shop class. Um, anybody in here ever take shop? I'm just trying to get like some commonality right here, all right? And like, if you know me, that's like totally outside my wheelhouse. I'm not a shop guy. I can't build things. But I had made a leather wallet where it was one where you went through and you just began to, to put an image into the leather. Just painstakingly slow process and just working with it. It was a picture of a horse. I'm from Kentucky, right? So I had a picture of a horse in a leather wallet with leather stitching around the edges. I'm like incredibly proud of this thing. And I began to carry it with me. Now I'm in eighth grade. I have nothing in my wallet, uh, but I'm carrying this wallet with me. And after practice one evening, I came back to my locker and my locker had been broken into. And then somebody had stolen several things out of my locker, including my wallet. Now, the monetary value was minimal, but I was hurt. I felt violated in that moment. Like somebody invaded my space and took something that I had worked for from me. Now, the question I have there is why? Why do we feel violated when someone steals from us? You ever think about that? Like, why do we feel that sense of violation against us? Well, 
Because, number three, the command don't steal implies ownership. Ownership pointing to the reality that we're created in the image of God. Maybe you've thought about that that way, and maybe you haven't. But think about it. No other creature owns anything, right? We do. There's nothing else on the planet other than the created beings of man and woman created in the image of God who we own. There's a sense of ownership that takes place. We, our house is our house. Our stuff is our stuff. Our body is our body. To own something is, to, is a part of being created in the image of God who himself is the owner of all things. So nothing wrong with owning possessions. God created his image bearers to have dominion over his creation. And ownership is part of what that looks like. We're going to talk more about that in a moment as well. But when someone breaks into our home, or shatters a window, steals our stuff, touches our body without permission, how do we feel? We feel violated. Why? Because that's counter to God's design. It's not supposed to be this way. There's a part of us in that moment of when we felt violated that we're like God also in crying out for justice. We want what's wrong to be made right. We know that it's not supposed to be this way. Now at the same time, when we're thinking about ownership, we as Christians understand or should understand that everything belongs to the Lord. Our homes belong to the Lord. Our stuff belongs to the Lord. Our bodies belong to the Lord. Just flip back like one page to Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. The Lord saying there in Exodus 19, 5, for all the earth is mine. He didn't say some of it. He didn't say just this little section over here or all of it's mine except this portion and then you get to do whatever you want with that. No, he says, all of the earth is mine. He owns it all. Every square inch, he owns it all, which should naturally affect how we think about ownership. Everything that we have belongs to God. We're simply stewards of what God has given the question then is, are we good stewards or bad stewards of what God has given? And again, we're going to come back to that question in a moment. But first, what is the biblical penalty for stealing? Well, the pattern we see for theft throughout Scripture is that the punishment must fit the crime. There's a call for, for restitution when we read through the Scriptures. So Exodus chapter 22, just a couple of chapters later, telling us that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and then he kills it or sells it, then he has to make restitution. So if you stole an ox, you know what you got to do? You got to give back five ox, oxen, whatever, right there. If you take one sheep, you know how you make restitution there? You got to get back four sheep. So I guess the ox is worth more than the sheep. I'm not really sure there, but we see restitution having to be made. But in chapter 22, those first 16 verses, they list out various types of theft and then the punishment and the restitution for each theft. Point being, no one has the right to take something that doesn't belong to them. 
We have no ability to go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to take that. That's mine. Rob, I want your coffee. That's mine. Like, no, we don't have that ability to do that. To do so is to violate the image of God. That's, so, that's what's so egregious about sexual abuse or, or slavery or, or sex trafficking. It's violating the image of God. Don't forget the, the Israelites are coming out of slavery over the past 400 years, and they very well know that this verse, this commandment applies to the circumstance. You shall not steal a person. It's clear. They understand this. It's why when we see of these things and hear of these things, there's such a longing for justice and restitution within us. Now, what about our relationship with God? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is it's clear. If you're a thief, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's again, it's Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty for our sin against God is death, which makes our next three questions so important. The first being, what does theft look like in the fallen world? Like we have the time to cover that, right? Not that we even want to spend all of our time covering that. But once again, the author of Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. Same sin from the very beginning, just different ways of doing it, just different ways that it manifests itself. So I don't think this requires a ton of explanation. There's a reason Moses doesn't give an extended commentary with this commandment. What's he do? He simply says, you shall not steal. Like they get it. Like you shall not steal. Why? Again, everyone knew what it meant. We know what it means. And we know that it's constantly being broken. Or there's a threat of it constantly being broken. That's why we invest so much in security, right? How many of you lock your doors at night? For the rest of you, I'm like, you need to. Like, we live in a fallen world. How many of you have an alarm system on your house, right? Why do we invest in those things? Why do we do so many safeguards to even guard our identity? I mean, we can't even go anywhere without a camera staring at us every single place that we go. Why? Because we live in a fallen world of thieves, imitators of the evil one who is looking to steal and to kill and to destroy. Which sounds real ominous, doesn't it? That's how we want to think about thieves and thievery. Ah, it's the ominous. It's the ski mask villains, right? These are the ones who are the robbers and the carjackers and the credit card thieves and the people who are out to carjack a car and all these different things. Ski mask villains. But it's a lot less ominous than that, isn't it? Just in the everyday, day-to-day, those who are guilty of not being completely honest with their taxes, that's theft. Or those who commit plagiarism, you know, stealing the work of another, another idea, somebody else's work, and then call it your own. I mean, we want to pick on students for that commandment, but man, the most guilty party I know of are pastors in that commandment. People taking somebody else's sermon and wanting to preach it as their own. That's theft. That's stealing. Or when the cashier gives you too much change back and you're like, oh, bonus for me. That's a theft. 
Or maybe you're, you're getting paid for a 40-hour work week and you're only working 38. You know, you're, you're not giving it all while you're at work. Clearly, there are more examples. And yes, we may see each of these as carrying different levels of severity. And the earthly consequences are no doubt different. But they're all forms of stealing. Steal one dollar or a million dollars. What are you? You're a thief. Steal from the rich or steal from the poor. You're still a thief. Justify it all you want. But if you take what is not yours, you're a thief. You're guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment and deserve to be justly punished. And if we stopped right here, though, if we just stopped right here, I have the fear that most of us would walk away kind of like the rich young ruler. We would walk out of this room today thinking, you know what? I'm not half bad. I've actually done pretty good in all of this. I think I'm good to go. Feeling as though we're not guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment which is why we can't stop here. But rather, we have to ask, how are we guilty of stealing from God? In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Malachi chapter 3. This is the last book of the Old Testament, so right before Matthew's gospel. And just a little context here. Remember, the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament have proven themselves unfaithful to God. So in Egypt, how were they? They were unfaithful to God. In the wilderness, unfaithful to God. In the promised land, unfaithful to God. To the point where God then removes them from the promised land, like he removed Adam and Eve from, from the garden, allowing them to be taken into exile, away from the land. But unlike Adam and Eve, God eventually allows a remnant of his people to return to the promised land and renew their covenant with the Lord allows them to rebuild the temple and await the throne of David to be restored. The throne of David being restored, how? Biblical Sunday school answer, through Jesus. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. But what, what do you think happened while they waited? Did you think that they remained faithful while they waited? No. No, that, that's what the prophets like Malachi are telling us telling us that they continued in unfaithfulness going forward. And here's where we pick up in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Just pause there for a moment. Such an encouraging truth on so many levels. Yahweh, God is telling us, for I, the Lord, do not change. Just think about that. God doesn't change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So when Israel is unfaithful, what is God? Always faithful. Always faithful. There's never a time when he is not faithful. He never changes. And then what comes next? That, that word, therefore. So remember, if you see the word therefore, what do you do? You always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And you point back and see, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why are the children of Jacob not consumed? Why is Israel not consumed? Because God doesn't change. That's why. It's not because of anything they've done. It's because of God doesn't change. He's faithful to his covenant. They're not consumed because God is a faithful covenant-keeping God. 
Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So the Lord telling us that in Israel's unfaithfulness, they're stealing from God. Which may seem odd when you really stop and think about it. How can the the finite steal from the infinite? How, How can the created steal from the creator? For God owns it all, right? He's sovereign over it all. So how can anyone steal from God? Well, it's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Remember that in forming his covenant with Israel, God placed them as stewards over everything that he gave them. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, to be stewards over the creation, over everything that God has given them. He's given them possessions to own and to enjoy and to be good stewards of. So parents, think about when you give your child a toy. You've thought about this toy, you give the the toy to your child, and when you give the toy to your child, who owns the toy? Well, since they do, right? It's their toy. They're going to identify it how? My toy. You're going to say, hey, this is my child's toy. You're not going to be like, hey, this is my doll, or this is my, it's like, this belongs to my daughter or my son. They own it. You give it to them to enjoy and to be a good steward of. But ultimately, who owns the toy? Or if you're bigger kids, who owns the car? Mom and dad do, right? Parents own own the car. Now, yet sometimes, I'm not saying for anybody on these first few rows, but sometimes for those others out there, we need to be reminded that they are owned by their parents. Because sometimes the words come out of like, mine, this is mine. Like, you can't tell me what to do because this is mine. I know nobody's child in this room ever says those type of things, but it's a feeling of mine. They forget that it belongs to us. They forget who is sovereign over the house, and they need to be reminded. That's what's happening here. And like our children and the Israelites, we need the same reminders in our relationships with God. Like here's where, here we're, we're focusing on God's covenant with Israel. Upon Israel's return from exile, God abundantly provided for them like he always has. And what he provided, they were both to enjoy and to manage. They were to enjoy and to be good stewards of. But they weren't to keep what did not belong to them, which is exactly what they're doing in keeping the tithes and the offerings for themselves. See, these were offerings God had set aside to to go to the temple and to the priest. So so keep the tithes and the offerings for themselves was to rob from God. Plain and simple, to keep for ourselves what rightly belongs to God is to steal from God. And here's where we begin to really probe the depths of our sinful hearts, our unfaithfulness, because we're all guilty of stealing from God. There's different application from the old to the new, which we're going to dive into here in just a moment. But the prophets ask, will man rob God? And we have to answer yes. 
We have robbed God. In fact, we regularly rob God. Just think about some of the ways that we rob from God. Like when we rob Him of the praise that His name is due and worship that He is due. I need a reminder that all things have been created for God's glory, not ours. All praise is due to His name, not ours. But what do we want so desperately? We want praise for our name. We may not say that out loud because we know that's not like the the politically correct or just the culturally correct thing to say of like, yeah, I want praise for my name. But what are we wanting inside? Oh, we want the praise for our name. We want those data, but we want that for ourselves. We also rob God of our time and our talent when we invest in lesser things. John Piper is famous for comments regarding collecting seashells. Don't waste your life collecting seashells. Now, there's nothing wrong with just collecting seashells in and of themselves. Leslie and I, when we go to the beach or anytime, we'd like to to collect seashells, to sit there on the beach and dig and to make sandcastles and all these things. Enjoy doing that. But if that's how you spent your life, your whole life, Spent like I'm collecting seashells and making sandcastles. Then what have you done? You've wasted your life. Nothing wrong with, with sports. I'm one of the biggest sports guys you'll find. Nothing wrong with exercise. That's a different story. Nothing wrong with watching movies or video games or, or, or whatever. But we're all guilty of wasting a lot of time on meaningless things that have no bearing on eternity. That's stealing both both our time and our talents from God and investing them in lesser things. What are we using our time and our talent for? It's not saying that we can't enjoy those things on occasion, but what's taking the bulk of our time? We're also guilty of robbing God of our wealth, our possessions and our finances which I know is a crazy, uncomfortable conversation. But as Christians, we we also have to remember that our stuff, it belongs to God who has entrusted us to be good stewards of our stuff. When we're not, we're stealing from God. See, like Israel, we too are a covenant people. The difference, however, between Israel and us is that they're under the old covenant, we're under the new They were required, required to to give a specific percentage of their wealth and tithes and offerings back to God. We're not. Which brings the natural question of why. Maybe some ears have kind of perked up. What do you mean we're not required in this sense? Well, if you've been around the church for for any length of time, not specifically this church, but any church in general, for any length of time, you've probably heard the word tithe associated with 10%. Giving 10% of one's first fruits, one's income, immediately back to the Lord. We see it all over the Old Testament. But the actual Old Testament total was closer to 25 or 30%. Once all the different offerings and all the different tithes were, were added up. So 25 to 30% of their yearly income was required to go directly back to God. Again, required. Again, not so of Christians living under the new covenant. So why? Why is it not so? Because we're no longer under the law, but under grace. 
which means we're no longer obligated to give out of obedience to the law. But that doesn't mean that we're not to give. But instead of giving under obligation to the law, we're to give in response to God's grace. Just think about that for a moment. We don't give under obligation to the law. We give in response to God's lavish grace. Our giving is to flow from a changed heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 give a beautiful picture of generous sacrificial giving, which may well exceed 10%, especially in our culture of abundant wealth compared to the rest of the world. And and why generous sacrificial giving? Because God has been so generous and sacrificial in his giving to us. It's giving from the heart that is in response to God's grace. Meaning grace giving isn't legalistic giving. It's not I have to give this amount. It's joy-filled giving that's evidence of a changed heart. That we want to be generous. We want to be sacrificial Young believers who've, who've never made faithful giving a part of, of their life, they often ask, but yeah, but how much? Like, how much are we talking here? And I can't answer that for you. But ask yourself, is what I'm giving, is what my family is giving, is it generous and sacrificial? Leslie and I, from, from day one, have like decided, you know, 10% is our starting point. I mean, this is back when we could not even afford or barely afford a pizza. Like, like literally, like we were like in our first apartment, had been there like a, a couple weeks. Leslie looks over to me, I said, you want to go get a pizza? She's like, literally, can we afford it? You know, that kind of deal. And like, just a constant reminder that whatever paycheck came in, that we're going to be generous and sacrificial right off the top. We were going to give 10%, a constant reminder to trust in God's provision. That's for our family. But some respond by saying, I'm just not in a financial spot to be generous or, or sacrificial. And if that is the case for you, if that's the case for you and your family, you need to ask, what will it take to get there? To, to be generous and sacrificial. Because God's people are to be a generous and sacrificial people. Where and how we use our wealth determines a lot about our heart as an indicator of who we are and who we worship. Who and what are we trusting in for our provision? Are we trusting in the Lord? Are we trusting in ourselves? Now, the next question I get is, what are we to give to? It's an honest answer. Like they, they don't know. Maybe, maybe that's you, some of you today. Like, okay, we're told to give, but where do we give? Who do we give to? And for that answer, I just look for the pattern that I see in the New Testament, which I see as giving primarily to and through the local church where one is gathering to be fed under God's word. Local believers collectively giving as the church for the purpose of making Christ's name known among all peoples and caring for those within the body who who are in need. So giving through the local church to fulfill the mission of the church. Now, does this mean that it's wrong to give to outside ministries or organizations? No. Be generous. Be sacrificial. 
There are ministries and organizations that have greatly blessed us. Have no problem giving to them. But not if it means forsaking giving primarily to the local church. But you are our family. You're the ones who we're doing life with. You are the ones who God has called us to be on mission with. This is where God has placed us on mission. We give here first and foremost. Now you've probably noticed we don't even pass an offering basket here at Harvest Point. We have one giving box located in the back. Uh, when you exit and when you enter, it's just right back there. In fact, we don't even mention money much here at all. So if this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. Uh, but today, it's like today of all days, even like the membership of this church is actually voting on whether or not to approve the, the, the proposed 2020 budget. It's not planned in conjunction with this message. It just fell that way. But it's the budget that's intentionally designed with the mission of God in mind. Every dollar going in one way or another to making disciples of all nations. Also designed that the more we collectively give together as a church, the more we're able to, to give away. And I praise God. I praise God for the generous and sacrificial giving of so many within this body. Not only financially, but the time and talent. We had so many here this morning just getting things ready and situated. But back on, on the finances... Again, while I praise so many, but based upon the amount of people that we have actively attending right now, it's also evident that our current giving, we still have a long ways to go in this area. This is an area where we can improve in as a body. And if this language makes you feel uncomfortable, then you need to honestly ask yourself, why? Why? I was uncomfortable in working on this. I'm thinking, I know how people are going to respond. We're talking about money. But then I have to ask myself the question, why am I nervous about this? Why am I uncomfortable with this? It's biblical. Number seven, can we be forgiven for breaking the eighth commandment? Yes. Praise God, yes. We have to look no further uh, here than the cross. Because as Jesus hung on the cross, who hung to his left and who hung to his right? Two criminals. Mark tells us two robbers, two thieves. And while one joined the executioners in the crowd and mocking Jesus, the other looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which is what? It's a statement of belief. This man's final moments, he has a statement of, of faith and belief. And how does Jesus respond? Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. A powerful reminder that there's forgiveness of sin that is found in the cross of Christ. Sinners are forgiven when they come to Jesus in repentance and belief. And their hearts and their lives are changed when they meet Christ. Which brings us back to where we started. And the rich young ruler, guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. Why? because he refused to give all that he had to God. But turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. And as you do, understand the call to follow Christ isn't a call to health and wealth and prosperity. It's a call to absolute devotion to Christ. Nothing wrong with having possessions. Nothing wrong with having nice things. Nothing wrong with having wealth. Notice how Jesus doesn't ridicule the young man for having money. Having money isn't the problem. 
The young man's problem was that he loved his wealth more than he loved God. This is where we're getting to the heart of the matter. Because look at verse 20, the young man saying, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Referring to the Ten Commandments. Meaning, I've never stolen anything in my life. But then verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And that's the part we want to focus on, isn't it? And the tendency can be to think of how much this young man has to give up. Like, Jesus, man, you're expecting too much. But just keep reading. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus is offering this man treasure in heaven. Jesus is offering himself to this man. Jesus isn't trying to take away from the man's pleasure. He's offering him the satisfaction of eternal treasure. He's calling him to be a good steward of the treasure that God himself has given him. The response is a stark contrast from the parable of the treasure in the field that we see in Matthew 13. Where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, which a man found and he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. People would have thought this man was crazy. Selling everything he had to buy the field. They're like, what do you want this field for? He's like, I don't want the field. I want the treasure that's in the field. He sees the treasure, doesn't care about the field. Could be a hundred acres, could be a thousand acres, could be no acres. He wants the treasure. Treasure more valuable and more wonderful than any eye had seen. And in his joy, not in his burden, he goes and he doesn't even think twice. He sells it all. It's good stewardship. Why? Because the treasure is Jesus. So the question I'll leave you with this morning is are you joyfully giving Jesus all that is rightfully his? Your praise, your worship, your time, your talents, your treasures, all of who you are. Are you living your life with the kingdom of God in mind? Or are you spending your life collecting seashells and stealing from God? Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we are satisfied by lesser things. Forgive us for for not trusting in your provision and for failing to see that everything we have is a gift from you. Forgive us for where we have failed to be good stewards. Yet we thank you for the cross and the forgiveness that is found for everyone who repents and believes. That we who bear the name of Christ be marked as a generous and sacrificial people. A people who give of our time, our talents, and our treasure in order to see Christ made much of among the nations among all peoples in order that we might display both a love for God and a love for neighbor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.